So it's good to see so many kids going out, not because we don't want them in here, but uh, because it's exciting to have a strong children's ministry where they have fun, but also learn the gospel and, and, and make it a part of their own lives. And so uh, thankful to Jennifer and all of those who assist her in leading that ministry to our children each and every week. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is where we're going to be over the next several weeks. Um, As you're turning there, let me just remind you, hopefully you heard this week with an email that went out to the church, but uh, Miss Linda Miller passed away on Tuesday at the age of 91, and we uh, buried her on Friday morning. And so I want to encourage you to be praying for her two kids, Doug and Julie, over the next several days and weeks, and that entire family. It was a sweet service on Friday morning. Continue to pray for for her family, and, and continue to lift up Miss Ruth Wooten, who um, uh, laid to rest her son uh, two weeks ago. And so continue to pray for those two families, if you will. So if you found your place there in Second Timothy, we're going to be in chapter 1 and chapter 4 on the front side, but we're going to look at verses from all four chapters. I'm going to do sort of a summary uh, this morning as we open up this new letter. But if you've been paying attention at all, to what's happening or has happened this past weekend, and if you're a football fan, an NFL fan, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This weekend, the hopes and dreams of 254 football players, collegiate football players, were made true, came to fruition as their names were selected and their names were voiced from the stage there at the NFL draft. I mean, think about what that's like for these young men. I mean, they've been working at this for years, working toward this goal of making it to the NFL, then making that team is the next goal for them. But to simply be drafted is monumental. You think about how it changes their life. Kyler Murray was drafted number one overall there on Thursday evening. But think about that decision or that that choice by the Arizona Cardinals to draft him. Think about what it meant for Kyler Murray to be drafted number one, to turn down a baseball career, drafted last year number nine overall in the major league uh, draft, now to come back, play football for another season, get drafted number one in the NFL, but that didn't just happen for him. Kyler Murray didn't wake up last Monday morning and say, you know, I think it'd be cool to be in the NFL. I think I'll throw my name in the hat and just see how the lottery works out for me. No, Kyler Murray prepared himself day in and day out for years. It started as a kid playing peewee football. Uh, It carried on into his high school career where he was a standout high school player. He committed himself there in high school in those early days to the weight room. He committed himself to the field to get stronger and faster. He committed himself in the film room to get smarter. His discipline combined with his own natural talent and abilities enabled Kyler to develop into the five-star recruit he was out of Allen, Texas as a high school player. He landed at the University of Oklahoma and this past season led the Sooners to the college football playoff. He won the Heisman Trophy for the nation's best player. He's an incredible athlete. You watch him on the football field, it's just mesmerizing to see him move around. You see all the players that got drafted into the NFL this past weekend, and you're just blown away by their natural talent, their abilities. But also, when you begin to, to, if you're a student of the game and you see other players, what you learn is, is that there are a lot of people who never make it to that level, but they have perhaps even greater talent and abilities 
than the ones who were drafted. Uh, Thursday night when I was watching the draft, I don't remember the, the player's name, but he's a defensive end for the Michigan Wolverines. And when he was drafted in the first round, somewhere around 15 or something like that, 16, uh, I remember hearing the commentators talking about him saying, he's not the fastest guy, he's not the most talented guy, but he's got the heart. He's got this heart that never quits, a, a motor, as football people talk about, that never stops. That's what puts him above perhaps other players with better talent. And so talent and natural ability plays a huge role, but there's something else that goes along with it. There's something else that makes a difference in a person's life, determining whether or not they're going to make it to that next level. And so I believe it's discipline. I believe it's a sense of commitment that makes the difference in a person's life. It makes it possible for a player to move up to that next level. The lessons that we learn on the gridiron are true in every area of our lives. That's why I love football so much. The only free thing, think about this, the only free thing in this world is salvation. Everything else you have to work and struggle and strive to develop. Even your own Christian walk must be personally developed as you, as Paul said in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See, once you come into relationship with Jesus, the responsibility is on you to grow, to nurture, to build up that relationship, to, to grow closer in the Lord. Here's a statement I want you to see. You cannot expect to have a great life if you don't plan for and work toward a great life. Think about that. You're not just going to wake up tomorrow and everything in your life is picture perfect. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and everything you've ever dreamed of coming to fruition actually came to fruition. No, it's going to take you planning on purpose, on paper. It's going to take you working toward those goals that you've said, putting them into action in your own life. That's the way you build a great life. You can't expect to be financially secure in your senior years if you don't, in your younger years, begin to make plans toward that end. You cannot expect to have children who love God and make wise decisions as adults if you as a parent do not train your children to love God and to make wise decisions as a, a child. You cannot expect to be a champion for Christ if you're not disciplined in your own self to be a champion for Christ each and every day. The ingredients that make for successful life are the same that make for a successful day. It's putting one step in front of the other. I'm going to live for God today. I'm going to run hard after God today, and that's going to play itself into the rest of my life so that today is, a, is all for Jesus. That means tomorrow is set up to be all for Jesus, and the next day is to be set up for all, to be set up all for Jesus as well. You play the way you practice. You go around any good coach, it doesn't matter what the sport is, and they're going to drive their players to practice hard. Because you're going to get in the game, and you're going to play in the game like you practice. If you're, if you're weak in practice, if you're lazy in practice, if you don't care in practice, you're going to be weak and lazy and don't care in the game as well. And the same is true for life. If I want my life to be a success tomorrow, I have to prepare today. And if I want my latter years to be everything that I've dreamed them to be, then I must begin working toward that end today. I can't wait till tomorrow. My little three-year-old, her favorite word, she's a natural procrastinator, I think. Her favorite word is, let's do it to later. She kind of, tomorrow and later, she's combined into one, and it's, let's do it to later. And that's the way we live our lives at times. We want to do it to later. We've got to begin working toward that end today. It's a daily grind in my life to be successful. The Apostle Paul's message here in 2 Timothy 
centers around this daily grind in godly training. And so what we're going to do over the next few months as we walk through 2 Timothy verse by verse, we're going to see that Paul here is writing to his young mentee in the faith, his protege in the faith, Timothy. And we're going to see that, that he's working to encourage him to continue to, to press hard into Jesus. Three years ago, we worked through the first epistle of Tim, to Timothy We saw there that Paul wrote that letter while traveling, hoping that he would soon be able to visit Timothy there in Ephesus, where Timothy was the pastor. Paul provided Timothy with instruction on the nature and the practice of the church. He addressed matters such as pastoral offices and what to do with widows and and what the public worship ought to look like in the church. Here in this second letter to Timothy, Paul's focusing on the personal ministry of this pastor himself. More than the ordering of the church, according to tradition, we know that Paul wrote this second letter from an underground chamber in Rome's Mamertine prison. And what we see at the end of this letter, there in chapter 4, it seems that Paul had already received a court hearing. He had already been charged and was expected to be executed any time. And even though Paul mentioned that Luke was with him, we still, as we read the last few verses of this epistle, picture this war-torn apostle alone and cold calls out to to, to Timothy saying, when you come to me, bring the the cloak, bring those scrolls, bring those parchments, and and I want to see you, Timothy. He longed to be with this young man whom he'd invested so much in and loved dearly. And so we discover in this letter a strong, passionate, and personal tone, which obviously is understandable based upon their relationship. This morning, as we begin uh, what I want to do, as I said earlier, is I want to give an overview of this epistle. I want to draw some applications for us. How does this apply to our lives and make a difference in our lives nearly 2,000 years removed? Paul's purpose in writing to Timothy was to encourage him in his personal walk. Anyone today need to be encouraged in your personal walk? Anyone ever need encouragement to continue to strive for Jesus, to press into Jesus? And You need somebody to come alongside of you and, and hold you up and life begins to tear you down? Paul's got a word for you. And again, what we see in the picture of this letter here to Timothy is that you don't just wake up one day, success story. We're going to see in just a moment, Paul says those words, I've fought the good fight, I've kept the faith. You see, Paul could say those words toward the end of his life because he had lived that way the rest earlier in his life. From day one as a follower of Jesus, pressing hard into the Lord. He didn't just wake up one, one day in this amazing apostle, this amazing church planner. No, he walked with Jesus every single day. Today, for us, we work toward becoming a success story as well, each and every day. And so this morning, I've titled this message this, WOD. I've titled it WOD, W-O-D. If you're a CrossFit fan or if you've paid attention to CrossFit at all, you know what that stands for. Can anyone tell me? Nobody bunch of lazy people. You don't even know what wad means. Work out of the day. Thank you. I don't know who said it, but you, somebody's paid attention. It stands for work out of the day. So if you're a part of CrossFit, there's a couple other different um, types of exercises that use this same acronym. But basically, you walk into the gym and, and you want to know what's the work out of the day. Whatever it's, 54 burpees and yada yada. I'm not, I don't do CrossFit, but uh, I have a lot of friends who do CrossFit. And so that's what they, they have, the workout of the day. You see, you don't achieve the CrossFit body. And, and people who are big into CrossFit, they have a very, uh, I was 
going to sound horrible if I said it. Good-looking body, but uh, a chiseled, that's what I want to say, a chiseled physique. That's what you're going for, that Adam body in the Garden of Eden. You don't achieve that unless you have a workout of the day. You don't just wake up one day and it's, man, i got six-pack abs, and i got rock-hard uh, biceps, and I've got thighs of thunder. You don't wake up one day and that happens. Here's what you do is you wake up one day, and you're like, where in the world did this physique that I once had go? Right? It happened to me when I turned 30. I had, I had six-pack all through my 20s because I was like this skinny kid growing up. I mean, I, my grandpa used to say, you could put me up next to a, a, a sideways dollar bill, and you'd see the dollar bill instead of me. I was, that's how skinny I was. And so I had that sort of physique all through my 20s. I didn't have to do anything. And then all of a sudden, on a dime, when I turned 30, hair starts falling out, pot belly starts growing. And I woke up one day, and I'm like, where did this come from? Right? That's what happens. But if you want the other side, you've got to work toward it. You don't wake up and have the CrossFit body. No, what you do is you develop a a lifestyle where you are working out each and every day. And the same is true for a Christian life. You don't develop a great Christian life without putting the work in each day. Every single day, grinding it out with Jesus. And so I I don't want you to misunderstand what I might have said earlier. No one works for his or her salvation. According to Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it is the gift of God. It's the grace of God in our lives through salvation. But we do see that if we want to grow in this relationship, then we have to do something to work that life out that's been deposited in us. We have to put it to work. And so God here speaks to our hearts through the gospel message, and then we learn to walk in that gospel. And so let me give you three things that the gospel does for us. And we're going to see it here in these verses in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 4. So look with me there in these first few verses, and then I'm going to share with you three things. Verse 1, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Look over in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Three things the gospel does in our lives. First of all, the gospel redeems. The gospel redeems. We see this here in in, in these simple words that Paul says to, to Timothy, opening up this letter. See, Paul spoke the blessing of grace, mercy, and peace over Timothy's life. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, he says. Who grants this? Jesus is the one who grants these blessings to you and I. And so think, let's just look at these three words. What is grace? Grace is this. Grace is you receiving what you don't deserve. That's what grace is. What do you deserve? As a sinner, what do you deserve? Wrath of God. You listened last Easter. I guess it was last week. We don't deserve the just penalty for our sin. The just penalty for our sin is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But we don't deserve or we don't receive that because of grace. So what is mercy? Mercy is you not receiving what you do deserve in your sin. You don't deserve or you don't receive the death and the hell, but you, you receive forgiveness and new life in Jesus, grace and mercy. And then he speaks of peace. Why is there a need for peace in our life? 
Well, the Bible tells us, according to Romans 3 and many other places, that we are enemies of God. We are hostile toward God. Our sin is an affront toward God. It separates us from Him. We are actually in rebellion against the God who created us when we are in our sin. And so we are not at peace with God. So one of the greatest needs in our lives as sinners is to be at peace with God. That's a battle you'll never win. Right? How can anyone ever defeat God? You can't go against God, and so you're going to lose every single time. In fact, you're going to lose in that place called hell. But Jesus comes to give us peace. He comes as the penal substitution for our sin, taking our sins upon himself, so that he could bear the wrath of God the Father on himself, so that we could also be set free and forgiven and at peace with God. That's what Jesus comes to do for us. And so... The grace or, or, or the, um, the, the, the redemption of Jesus Christ is the grace of God that changes our lives. The gospel redeems. Secondly, the gospel enlists. We see here that the gospel transforms the life of the sinner. Paul refers to himself as an apostle. It's interesting when you know the full story of who the apostle Paul was. He used to be called Saul of Tarsus. And so the gospel transformed this sinner's life. The Bible tells us that every sin is washed, cleaned, and removed through the gospel message in our lives. All condemnation, therefore, is eliminated. And at the same time, the gospel enlists us as the redeemed into the family God and to the mission of God. This letter here was written to Timothy. Timothy's the pastor of the Ephesian church. And believers are enlisted into the universal church of God upon conversion. And, and we see this. There's this universal aspect to the church where the believers in Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica and everywhere else, they were all part of the universal body of Christ. But that universal body of Christ expressed itself locally in different areas. And so upon conversion, we are brought into, ushered into that, that universal church, but it's always in the New Testament expressed on a local level. And so it enlists us into the church. It also enlists us into the mission of God. Paul calls himself an apostle here, as I just mentioned. This was a special commission given by Jesus to just a select few men. These men were enlisted to establish the church, to, to, to create or divine, define its doctrine. And that age, the age of the apostles, has passed. It's no longer all upon us today. They've left us this canon of truth. But the mission of God still remains. What the apostles were doing, what the early church was doing, is still our mission even to this day. Gospel enlists us into this mission. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are ambassadors for Christ as if God is making his appeal through us. Right? That's not just the church at Corinth. That's not just the Apostle Paul. That's you and I. We're a part of this body of Christ. We've been enlisted into this body of Christ. And in su as such, we've been enlisted into this mission of Christ. It's the reason God has not taken us to heaven. You ever thought about that? Upon conversion, just baptized Anna just a little bit ago, right? So on December 20th, when she gave her life to Jesus Christ, why didn't Jesus immediately take her to heaven? Same reason he didn't take you to heaven when you put your faith in Jesus. We have a mission to carry out. The, re the way the gospel is propagated in this world is not through angels. It's not even through God himself. God doesn't come down and stand on a street corner and preach the gospel. God doesn't take a person to the coffee shop and, and over coffee and with a napkin there 
articulate the gospel in such a way that a person can understand and believe. God is not doing that. He's using you and I to do that through his Holy Spirit speaking through us, but we are the vessel that God uses. That's the reason we're still here. So we are enlisted into his mission so that he can use us and the message of the gospel to transform the lives of people. The gospel redeems, the gospel enlists, thirdly, the gospel rewards. Chapter 4, those verses that I read, Paul talks about the rewards that it's awaiting him. Here's, he's ending or, or nearing the end of his life, and as he's nearing this end, he's reflecting. He's thinking about what awaits him in heaven. Here we find a great reminder that the Lord will reward our labor. And I've heard people actually say this, I don't think we should focus too much on rewards. That seems too humanistic. That seems too uh, secular. That seems too fleshly. Well, if we shouldn't focus on the rewards, why did God put them in the Bible? They're there to encourage us, to spur us on. And Paul, as he's thinking about the end of his life, he's saying, I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith, and there is laid up for me a treasure. There is laid up for me a crown. There is laid up for me a reward from the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you read other places, you'll see this. Our focus on the rewards isn't so that we can say, look at me. What we do in turn is we take those rewards and we lay them back at the feet of Jesus and say, they're all for you. Everything that I've ever done, every time I've ever obeyed you, every time I've said yes to what you called me to do, every time I served someone else, every time I took a cold glass of water in the name of Jesus to someone, it wasn't for me, it wasn't for my glory, for my fame, it was for the fame and the glory of Jesus Christ. And we lay those rewards down at the feet of Jesus as an offering back unto him. That's why Jesus, or that's why Paul is so excited about having something to offer to Jesus. You see, Paul's life was what we might call gospel-centric. It centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was finishing strong because he had made a conscious decision each and every day to be gospel-centered in how he lived. That's how Paul functioned. Every single day, how can my life revolve around Jesus and his mission? How can my words revolve around Jesus and his mission? How can my service revolve around Jesus and his mission? How can my, my money, my finances revolve around Jesus and his mission? How can my activity in the church revolve around Jesus and his mission? Compare that and contrast it with how we often live our lives. My finances... For me and my family, what we want to do. My talents, they're for me and what I want to do. They're for my name and my fame. We so many times as Christians live the exact opposite of the way Jesus would have us to live. The way Paul exemplified for us and how to live as a Christian. So today we should live gospel-centric lives. Let me give you some keys of how to live a gospel-centric life each and every day. How do we do this? Four things. First of all, protect the gospel. Protect the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.14, Paul says, For the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. By the Spirit of God, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. There's nothing more important than rightly guarding and giving the gospel to the next generation. I think the most beautiful words I was able to say before I baptized Anna earlier was she had been having a conversation with mom and dad and grandparents. I didn't have to say, 
Jennifer Moffitt, one of our student or children's leaders, had been working with her, and, and they were, right? A lot of conversations went into these decisions. I didn't have to say Nick and Holly had been working with them, you know, through children's and now in student ministry. No, what we could say, what I could say is mom and dad spent some time invested into her life. Grandparents invested into her life. Aunts and uncles invested into her life. Church members invested into her life. So we are to protect the gospel and pass it on and give it to the next generation. It's often said that when one generation, we're one generation away from losing the gospel. If the gospel is assumed in one generation, think about it, it can and most likely will be neglected, ignored, and or abandoned in the next. And so we must keep guard over the gospel. Here at the end of Paul, Paul's life, what's he most passionate about? The gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us that's the most important thing in his life. And today it's the same thing for us. Paul, throughout his life and ministry, stood for the gospel. He stood against heresy. Why? Contending for the gospel. He stood against hardship, or he endured hardship and struggles and, and difficulty, shipwreck, beaten, all of those things. Why? For the sake of the gospel, to take the gospel to the next town, to the next city, to the next person. He rebuked friends and colleagues. He even rebuked the apostle Peter at one point. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall in that conversation? But why was he willing to do that? Because he was standing and protecting the gospel. He was willing to give his life all to protect the integrity of the gospel message. Paul never wavered. He never backed off on the content. He never diluted the message. And today we live in a culture where we are diluting the message in church after church after church. Denominations for decades have been diluting the message so that now they have no gospel. In essence, they have no church. We've got to stand for truth. And that's what Paul is speaking to Timothy about, to continue to contend for the gospel, to guard it in his life and in his ministry. Paul was convinced that the gospel message, that of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, was the power of God for salvation for the Jew and for the Greek. And for us today, that's the only thing we have to offer this culture. The only thing you have to offer your neighbors and your coworkers, the only thing you have to offer your friends at school, the people that you work, live, and play around, the only thing you have to offer them is the gospel message because it's the only thing that can change their life. Now, should you do other stuff? Absolutely. You serve in the name of Jesus, but you bring the gospel with it. Are you guys awake? I see a couple heads, but man, just I think I'm preaching pretty good this morning. We'll just stay here a while and learn to amen a little bit more. We get out sooner. <laughs> Sarcasm means we go longer as well. I hope you hear me this morning. We cannot and we must not waver in our commitment to the gospel. We cannot. We must protect it in our church. We must believe this Bible. We must uphold this Bible. We must stand by this Bible. Even when the waves of culture would, would, would seek to erode the foundation out from underneath it. We must protect it in our homes. Dads, you've got to protect the gospel in your home. It's your responsibility. It's not my responsibility to protect the gospel in your home. My responsibility is to protect the gospel in this church. Our elders and our staff, we're to protect the gospel in this church. But your responsibility, Dad, is, is in your home. Moms, it's your responsibility in the homes. Teach the gospel to your children. Read the Bible. Study the scriptures together. Pray together. That is your responsibility. We must protect it in our personal lives. 
When we're tempted to stray from the Lord, we've got to lean into the gospel even that much more. Rather than, than falling prey to, the, 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 again, the, the current of culture, we've got to say, no, I've got to live holy before the Lord. We've got to be like Joseph and say, how could I do such a sinful thing, a wicked, evil thing, and sin against my God? No, I'm going to protect the gospel in my life, in my home, in my church. We do this by knowing the gospel. By believing the gospel. You can't protect anything that you don't have a personal relationship with. And so this requires discipline in ourselves. Discipline to read the scriptures. Discipline to study the scriptures. How many times are, are you guilty of the only time you've read the Bible in the entire week is when you're here and it's on the screen? I don't want you to raise your hand this morning because I don't want to be mortified if it was like all of us. But is that true of you? If the only time you read your Bible is in church, something's wrong with your spiritual life. Tremendously wrong with your walk with Jesus. You might not even have a walk with Jesus if you care so little about the Word of God. How many of us are memorizing it and put it into our minds so that we can hide it into our heart, what David says, so that I might not sin against God? I'm in a D group with several men. We meet every other Monday, and part of our practice is, is that we're memorizing Scripture. Why? Because we want to hide it into our hearts so that we don't sin against God. This requires discipline. We've got to discipline ourselves together weekly or regularly, I should say. I understand some can't weekly, but regularly with the church in worship in small groups. We need to discipline ourselves to be under the teaching of the Word of God on a regular basis. It's important that you're in church, and it ain't to, to, to make me feel better about myself, Right? Though it's a whole lot easier to preach to a full crowd than a small crowd. So if you want to encourage the pastor, bring some people with you. If that's the only motivation you need to get somebody to come with you, let that be a motivation. Though it's a poor motivation. But you should be in church and you should be in a small group. Uh, we, we are huge on small groups here at Redland because you will, if you don't get connected into a small group, the only thing you do is come on Sunday mornings in this room right here. In five years, there's a good, good chance you won't be here won't even be in church. You need to connect with other believers on a more intimate level. So you need worship. You need small groups. I would even encourage you to go a step further and be in an even smaller discipleship type of group. So, number one, protect the gospel. Number two, prepare in the gospel. 2 Timothy 2.1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus we're not going to read this entire passage here, the first few verses of chapter 2, but Paul gives us three examples of disciplined preparation. He talks about a soldier, he talks about an athlete, and he talks about a farmer. If you're going to be a soldier, you have to be disciplined. If you're going to be an athlete, you're going to have to be disciplined. If you're going to be a farmer, it's going to require discipline. So he gives us these beautiful examples. The soldier keeps his focus on the one who's ple who, on pleasing the one who enlisted him. He's, his focus is there. I want to please the sergeant. I want to please my officer that's in charge of me. I want to please the one who's over me. The athlete keeps his eye on the finish line. He wants to finish well. May not finish first, but he's going to finish strong. And then the farmer, discipline in how he prepares his fields. He wants to prepare them well, knowing that he too will enjoy the produce. You see, what you do and how you serve the Lord is also going to impact your own vitality, your own spiritual life. And so we need to prepare ourselves in the gospel. We need to work in the gospel, growing, strengthening ourselves in the gospel each and every day. We need to discipline ourselves 
in that. Thirdly, persevere in the gospel. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, there's a fun thing. Thanks, Paul, for telling me that. I want to live for Jesus. I want to be passionate for Jesus. I want to experience all that he has for me. But am I the only one? I would prefer never to be persecuted. Right? I prefer to everything... For, for everyone and everything in my life to be hunky-dory and wonderful and just, just easy. But that's not the way it is. God never promised to give us an easy Christian life. And if you're a believer in many areas of the world, they understand that because it's not an easy thing to be a Christian. Sri Lanka last week when those Christians gathering for Easter worship were bombed by suicide bombers. That's not an easy thing. Happens all the time around the world. God's never promised to give us an easy Christian life. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Instead, what he does promise is hardship and difficulty. Most of the examples of godly living in the Bible, what do we see there? Adversity. Full of adversity. Some of it's outward persecution, people trying to kill them. Others, it's just the struggle of of living in a fallen world. But all around us, people who care nothing for the gospel. All around us are people who care nothing about the God that we love and serve. All around us are people who reject him. All around us are people who are working to silence the gospel. And so living for Jesus in this world is a lot like a fish swimming upstream, fighting against the current. The current of culture is ever working against us. And so it's pushing us always back. And we've got to lean in and strain that much more to get up and to move forward. In order to finish strong at the end of our lives, we have to finish strong each and every day. Again, going back to the wad, the workout of the day. If I'm going to have a great life at the end, I've got to have a great life today. I've got to take it one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, one day leading into the next, every single day, living it for one purpose, the glory of God. We must persevere today so that we can persevere tomorrow. We must be okay with enduring the hardship that comes with such a determination. What does that look like? could mean this. You don't get the job promotion because of your faith. It could mean that you lose friends because of your faith. You know, many times when a person comes to Jesus and they've lived a pretty wild life, they lose a lot of their friends because you're like, I don't know partying and getting drunk all the time and drugs and all these things that come with the sinful lifestyle, they're not attractive anymore. And so your, your lives, your lives are, are going in different directions, so it's just a natural to, to, to part ways. Now, you as a follower of Jesus, you want to make sure that you're trying to, to bring them over into the gospel and, and, and win them to Jesus, but you don't want to continue to walk in their debauchery and their sinfulness and their wicked lifestyle. And so you're going to lose your friends at times. And with that, you're going to be ridiculed. People are not going to understand why you're doing what you're doing. Now you're just a, a, a holy roller. You're just a holier-than-thou type person. No, it's not that at all. It's Jesus has changed my life, and he's changed my want-tos. I no longer want to live like that. So you're going to be misunderstood. And in all of this, you're going to be tempted at times to give up. Man, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to... To say yes to Jesus when, man, it seems like my life's getting worse and worse. It's harder and harder. I, I didn't get the promotion. I lost my job. Uh, bills are piling up on me. Jesus, I, I thought you said you loved me. Where is the blessing in my life? 
Well, the daily grind is God's shaping you and growing you in these difficulties. And so continue to press into Jesus. Look to him. He is your help. Persevere to the end because it's worth it. Fourthly and lastly, the key to a gospel-centric life is proclaiming the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 5, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And then verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul's speaking to a pastor here, and he's reminding Timothy of his pastoral calling. He says, Timothy, you need to preach the word. You need to always be ready to give a defense for, his, for your faith. And that's whether you're in the pulpit or out of the pulpit. And nothing has changed for us today. The same calling for pastors is, is on us. But it's also not just for the pastors. You say, I'm human just like you are. I put my pants on the same way you do, one leg at a time. Maybe you'd put them on two legs at a time, but I put mine on one leg at a time. So we're to proclaim the gospel. Our mission as the redeemed of God is to take the message of redemption to a lost world. That's what I said earlier. Jesus leaves us here to share the gospel with people. He leaves us here to proclaim the message of salvation to a lost and hurting world. So there's no other hope for the world other than the hope that's provided through the gospel. So we must proclaim it. That has to be our mission. That has to be who we are as a Christian, who we are as a church, who we are as families who love Jesus and are pursuing Jesus. We have to proclaim the gospel. This weekend... Those 254 football players saw their dreams come true as the names were called from the stage there at the NFL draft. Their work, their preparation, all the things that they put in for years have now paid off as they have been drafted into the NFL. The daily grind has come to fruition. Does it stop there? No, it's going to have to continue throughout their career. But the dream that they had has now happened. But it didn't happen overnight. It took time. It took energy. It took discipline. It took commitment. It took hard work. And so let us learn from their example, even this weekend. A successful Christian life does not just happen. It requires strong diligence, strong determination, strong work ethic. It involves a daily commitment to the Lord and living out what he's commanded. It requires us to say yes to to the things that God says that we're to do no matter what. You and I must protect the gospel in our lives. That's got to be priority for us. we got to protect it in our homes. we got to protect it in our church. And so this morning, I want you to ask yourselves the question, how am I doing? How are you doing in this, in protecting the gospel in your life, your home, your church? Do you allow the cultural pressures to influence your faith and your commitment to Jesus? Do you allow it to influence how you interact with others? we got to protect the gospel. You and I also must prepare in the gospel. How are you doing in that? Are you daily strengthening yourself in God's word through study, through memorization? Are you regularly gathering with the church and worship in small groups? Say, I'm here this morning. Well, here's what happens in church life. Now, there's a good, there's a good group of our church who's here nearly every Sunday. So I'm not 
I'm not trying to offend anybody, but here's what happens in church life. You could say that we have our A's who are here probably three, four times a month. You got your B's who are here like two times a month. You got your C's who pop in maybe once, but really more like once every six weeks. And then you got your D's, and they're like Mother's Day and Easter and Christmas, and and you're loosely connected, right? So you got your A's, B's, C's, and D's. So where do you fall in that spectrum? I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody, but that's just reality. Here's the reality, though. We all should be A's. We all should be A's because Hebrews 10.25 tells me that we should not forsake the assembling of the brethren. And so there shouldn't be a higher priority on my Sunday morning than gathering with the church. And that's just not because I get paid to be here because this is what I do for a living, right? Don't hear it that way. If I wasn't a pastor, there would be no greater priority in my life on Sunday morning than being at church. Because there was no greater priority in my life before I became a pastor. I was in church. So I can say that with all honesty. So we need to prepare ourselves in the gospel, studying scripture, memorizing scripture, gathering with the church, growing with others in our faith as we study God's words together, as we encourage one another, as we go out and and do ministry together. You and I also must persevere in this gospel. And so how are you doing in that? Do you find it too difficult to swim against the cultural current at times? Do Do you draw strength from the fact that if the world persecuted Jesus that it would persecute you? Or do you say, well, I don't deserve this. Why am I being persecuted? It's not fair. We've got to stick by the truth and understand that, that if they did it to Jesus, they're going to do it to us. So endure hardship because your reward is waiting. And then lastly, proclaim the gospel. How are you doing in that? Are you doing the work of an evangelist? Do you share the gospel where you live and you work and you play? Here's something I... Here's something that I see coming out of Easter last week. We had a great Sunday, right? Great Sunday, much more in the first service, which we kind of expected than the latter service. But it was not near what it could have, should have been, as far as people here. You say, well, what do you care about numbers? It's people. We care about numbers because numbers represent people. And that's just that many more people who had had an opportunity to hear the gospel. And so here's what I see coming out of events, right? Because we did a wonderful thing Saturday. We could go Saturday at the, at the fairgrounds. We had... I still don't know exactly the total numbers, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Evan evangelism is gone. If we expect to, to see our communities transformed, gospel received, people being saved, disciples being made, because we can put on a big show and invite them to a big event and, and transformation takes place. If we expect that, then we are going to be sorely disappointed because it doesn't happen in America anymore. Now, we can go to Africa and take you to countries in Africa, and we can do a big crusade, and thousands of people will come, and sometimes they're coming for the wrong reason, but you still have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel there. But in America, that ship has sailed. I don't know that we ever should have launched that ship to begin with as an evangelism priority, but that is a ship that is long gone. And so today in our culture, that is post-Christian culture, we have to go back to the New Testament approach to evangelism. And this is what it is, one relationship rubbing against another relationship. Me sitting down and and, and having coffee with someone that I know that I've met in the community that's that's a parent at the school where my child goes or or our kids play on the same team or I know them from down the street because we're neighbors and we're just sharing life together and I'm pouring my life into them and I'm not coming at them with a Bible thumping on on the head but I'm coming to them saying, hey man, I notice that you're struggling in your life or I know this, this or whatever and somehow in some way you're weaving the gospel message into your relationship with that person. 
And if we will do that, lives will be transformed. Disciples will be made. Church will grow. Culture will change. But it's on us to do it. We can't expect to have a resurrected Billy Graham come to Powhatan and say, thus saith the Lord, and the whole culture changes. That's not going to happen. But it will change on your street, in your neighborhood, in our county, if you and I collectively will take responsibility for the proclamation of the gospel in our homes, in our places where we work, where our kids go to school, and where we play. We must recommit ourselves to personal evangelism. Godly training. Workout of the day. If you want a great life, live a great day. Hot hearts for Jesus, total commitment for him and his mission, and watch what God will do one step at a time. You don't wake up one day and you're this champion for Christ. No, that happens little by little. I thought about this. I don't know if anybody watches Last Man Standing. Does anybody watch that, that sitcom? It's my favorite sitcom on TV. Um, it's just it's hilarious because it's hard to find a good sitcom these days. They're so politically correct. And so I like it because it's like the antithesis of political correction. So it's like jibes with me. But this past Friday night, um, the, the, the main character, um, and I just forgot his name, but um, yeah, but his character's name, whatever his name is, Outdoor Man, let's just say that. He did a, he, his video blog thing was right on to this. He was talking about how um, the, the, the first astronaut to ever walk on the moon, he didn't just, that didn't just happen. In fact, that's like the greatest achievement in his life. And, and the second achievement ever, the second greatest achievement was like jumping out over Vietnam or Korea or something like that. And so it's like these tremendous uh, accomplishments in his life. But it didn't just happen. He had to take steps to get there. He became, you know, educated and Air Force pilot, test or Navy pilot test pilot, all these things to get to this incredible uh, position that Neil Armstrong was able to get to. And that's true of us in our Christian life. One step at a time, working out daily will bring you a great life. And so this morning, what's God just kind of triggering in your heart? What's he pointing out as far as an area that needs to change? Maybe this morning for some of you, it's salvation. The greatest need in your life is to say yes to Jesus. God, I need forgiveness for my sins. I need my life changed. I can't do it myself. I've been religious. It hadn't worked. I've done everything I think I can do or what I think I should do, but it's just no peace there. So I need salvation today. Maybe that's your great need. For some Christians, some of these four things really connect with you. Man, I'm not persevering in the gospel. I'm not preparing myself in the gospel. I don't even read the Bible. It's so foreign to me. I don't even understand the Bible because I don't read it. And so I need to get back to that. Or, man, I don't ever share my faith. And so maybe as a Christian, what you need to do this morning is just say, Lord Jesus, I'm blown in this area. And I thank you that 1 John 1, 9 tells me that if I will confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me of that sin. And so this morning, I'm just laying it before you, Lord. Here's the areas that I'm failing miserably in. Please forgive me and help me now to walk in the truth that I've learned. So maybe you need to repent, recommit yourself to the Lord. Perhaps some of you have been, joining, or been visiting here for, for a while, and it's time to join. We've got some who will um, join later this next month at our members' meeting, and so maybe that's the next step for you is God's just saying, here's the church that you need to connect with because they believe the Bible, they believe in the gospel, and this is a place where you need to place your life and settle down. And so what is God speaking to us. I'm going to invite Nick to come up, and we're going to move into a time of response. We're going to stand, and we're going to sing, and I'm going to encourage you to come forward. If God is speaking to your life for salvation, if God's speaking to your life, maybe you just need to get alone here at the, the front and just spend some time praying, but
Let's do business with the Lord and respond to his word. Father,